Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Krishna, Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Today's the 21st of April in 2019 in Dallas, and we're going to look at a 
verse in the very beginning of the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 2, text 17. Vinasi tu tadvidi ye nisarvam midam tatam vinasham av yayasyasya nakachit kartumarhati. That which pervades the entire body you should know to be indestructible. No one is able to destroy that imperishable soul. So many times people talk about having a soul, that we have a soul. They talk about, well, the soul that we have will go to heaven after death or go somewhere after death. But the philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita is a little different. It's not that we have a soul, but rather we are a soul and we have a body. Mm. Now, if we want to be happy, the first thing we have to know is who we are. Just from a very logical point of view, you know, if you're a cow, you can't eat rabbits. And if you're a cat, you have to eat rabbits. So if you want to know how you're going to be happy, you have to first know your identity. Does that make sense to everybody? If I don't have any idea of my identity, I can't tell what to do that will make me happy. At the present time in most of the world, we are told by our teachers, perhaps our parents, the media, the government, that if we want to be happy, we go to a good school, we get excellent grades, we get accepted in a top university, we get some high-status degree, a high-status job, a big house, an attractive romantic partner, beautiful intelligent kids, a flat-screen TV in every room, and a dog, right? And then we'll be happy. But we all know people who have all that, and they're not happy, and people who don't have any of that, and they are happy. Isn't that a fact? Everybody knows that. We all know people who are cash-rich and unhappy, and cash-poor and happy. The people with the high-status jobs who are unhappy and people with very humble jobs who are happy. Yes? So that obviously can't be the solution. You know, there are many birds that will fix on the first large moving object as their mother. You know about that, yes? Everybody knows that? When a bird hatches out of its egg, whatever is the first large moving object that it encounters... It will follow that, and it will think that it's of the same species. This particular wiring in birds has caused some problems for researchers, where the birds imprinted on them, and the birds thought that they were a human, because they followed around the human researcher their whole life. And when they were ready to mate, they tried to mate with the researcher. They had the wrong identity. Hmm? So who are we? Who am I? I can look at my identity just in terms of this body and this mind and take so many tests. What's my personality? What's my propensities? But ultimately, is that my authentic self? 
So the Bhagavad Gita is asking us to consider that our authentic self might be different. Here Krishna is saying our authentic self is indestructible. It is our awareness of continuing identity. If I think that I am this body, but I've had different bodies in this life. I remember showing a photograph once to a friend of mine, myself and my family. I was about 25. It was inside of our Hare Krishna magazine. And I showed it to a friend and she said, where are you in that picture? You know, if we took photographs of everyone here when we were two, unless there's people who are two now, and we put them up on the wall and said, try to match this photograph of everyone at two with the present body, would we be able to do that? Or have you ever looked at pictures of your grandparents, like at their wedding, and you're just thinking, who are those people? I mean, unless somebody said to you, this is your grandparents, you wouldn't know. Who's that good-looking couple there getting married? So it's a different body. You know, every 72 hours, all the cells in our digestive system are, are renewed. Every 72 hours. And within seven years, every cell in the body has been changed. And it's not just, you know, not just that you took that little baby body and you pumped it up like a balloon. It's a different body. But yet I have a continuing sense of identity. I I remember before I could speak, trying to get my mother's attention. I can remember that. I can remember the room. I can remember thinking in pictures. But my body has changed. My mind has changed. Yet I have a continuing sense of identity. I am the awareness that's witnessing the changes in this body. And then how many of you have ever seen someone die? How many of you have ever seen somebody die? Wow, a lot of you. So, of course, I'm sure we've seen already dead creatures like insects or animals, but the first creature I saw die was a cat. And the only human I've seen die is my mother. But when you see someone die, before they die and after they die, the body is there. But the person's not there. There's, the living being is not there. I like to tell this story. There was a man in the western part of this country, worked for the government to trap predator animals like coyotes, mountain lions. And one day he took his 10-year-old son with him out to check the traps. And there was a cougar, a mountain lion, that was caught in a trap. And as they watched, the cougar died. And the boy looked at his father and he said, who turned off the light in the animal's eyes? That was a changing point for the man that he decided that he was going to go into a career to try to save the predator animals rather than to kill them. But at death, it's very clear to us that the person is someone different from the body. My mother's body was there in the bed, but my mother wasn't there. So who is she? At least immediately after death, all the elements of the body were there. There wasn't some big change in chemicals, but she was gone. And then there's so many out-of-body experiences. Everyone's heard of this? Like near-death experiences? 
Somebody will be on the operating table. Their heart stops, their brain stops, everything's flatlined. Sometimes for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then they come back in their body and they say, I was floating near the ceiling and I saw the sticker on the light bulb on the top. I heard the conversations in the other rooms. There's thousands and thousands of well-researched cases of people who left their body in a hospital, well-documented, was able to give concrete, verifiable information of what they had seen and heard that they couldn't possibly have seen or heard from within their body. Thousands and thousands of such cases by top researchers. And then there's so many people who remember their past lives. Many children, especially under the ages of six or seven, who just spontaneously remember. And sometimes these children are in families where the parents don't believe in reincarnation. The society doesn't believe in reincarnation. And the parents don't know what to make of these kinds of stories. And the children will say, I lived there and I died there. And that was my mother and father and my sister and my brother. And they'll take people back to the address when they're just three years old. And again, so many documented cases that our identity is not this body and not this mind. That that's my real self. And then we have some subjective evidences. We all would like to live forever as young, healthy, vibrant people, right? Nobody wants to die. I mean, perhaps we want to die if our life is really miserable and awful because we think there's no way to fix it. But if we could have a happy, vibrant, healthy life, nobody would want to die. But everybody dies. It's the one universal truth. Why do we have a desire for an eternal, youthful, healthy life when nobody can ever achieve it? Where does the desire come from? We all have a desire for unending happiness. Yes? That desire is exploited by all the advertisers. You know, chew this gum and you'll get unending happiness. Drink Coca-Cola, you know, buy this washing machine. And we know, if we think rationally, that the washing machine and the stick of gum and the new car and the toothpaste or whatever is not going to give us unending, unlimited happiness. We've had experience that nothing in this world gives us unending, unlimited happiness. The best we get in this world is a few moments. And even that is usually just on the level of one or two senses. We don't have experience of all of our senses and all of our mind experiencing unlimited, ever-increasing happiness. But yet that's what we want. We may try to rationalize our suffering and say, well, you have to take the good with the bad. It's as good as it gets. But it's not what we want. We want to understand things. So much science, so much research. But the more we study and the more we know, the more we know that we don't know, isn't it? 
What do the scientists say? We can only perceive, what is it, 5% of the matter in the universe? That's not very much. We don't even know what we don't know. We don't, we don't even know what parts of light or sound we can't perceive that we can't even measure with an instrument. But yet we have a desire to know. We have a desire to live. We have a desire for happiness. We have a desire for knowledge that cannot be attained on the material physical platform. Is that correct? Am I right? Well, where do those desires come from? Why do we have them? You know, there are creatures who live in the desert who never need to drink water. And they have no desire to drink water. They don't have a sense of thirst. Or fish, you know, they have no sense of thirst. You ever thought about that? That fish never feel thirsty? But you know what? Put on some scuba diving gear and go in the water. And eventually, you'll feel thirsty. No matter how much we try to imitate a fish... If we go into their environment, we're going to feel thirsty because we're a creature of another environment. If we were really just material beings, if we were just this body and this mind, we would not have desires that are unattainable in this environment. We'd be genuinely satisfied with this environment. The fact that we have desires for something beyond this environment is very strong subjective evidence that our identity is different. So unless we know who we are, we can't be happy. We can't even know how to be happy. We can't even have a process for being happy. So we've looked at some objective empirical evidence that we're beyond the body and mind and some subjective evidence. But then who are we exactly I can understand what I'm not, okay? I'm not this body and I'm not this mind and I'm some sort of awareness, but how does it go beyond that? I mean, here Krishna just says, I'm indestructible. Well, okay, but is there something more than that? So later in the Bhagavad Gita, in the 15th chapter, Krishna says, Mamai Vamso Jiva Loke Jiva Bhuta Sanatana Manashastra Indiani Prakriti Stani Karshati that I am a part of the divine. I am a part of the whole. I belong to something. I belong to someone. I'm not just a spiritual being. I mean, in this world, we also look at our identity in terms of to who do I belong, isn't it? Like I think, well, I was born in America, so I belong to America. I'm part of America. Even I think, like, I was born in New York City, and I think, I'm a New Yorker. And then there are people here like, I'm a Texan. Isn't it? Right? And that becomes part of our idea of our identity. And we think, if Texas is happy, I'm happy. Because that's part of our identity. But if I'm not this body, then what is the whole of which I'm really a part of? The whole of which I'm really a part of is not going to be, you know, Bengal or Tamil Nadu or Texas or New York. The whole of which I'm really a part is Krishna. And just like if I think I'm a part of Texas, then I think that if you don't mess with Texas, then I'm going to be happy. If I could somehow make Texas happy, 
So if I understand I'm a part of Krishna, I can understand if I make Krishna happy, I'll be happy. But Krishna is very clear also in this beginning of Bhagavad Gita that not only am I indestructible, but I'm indestructible as an individual. This particular understanding that I am an individual spirit without beginning and without end is crucial to understanding levels of enlightenment that we'd have to say, objectively speaking, are not well known in the world, even among all the religions and all the spiritual processes. The information is there. If you look in the Bible and the Quran, you will find that the information is there, that we're an individual. But it's not so much understood at the present time, nor taught at the present time. And we are very, very fortunate here in the Hare Krishna movement, in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, that by the grace of our founder, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, that we have some understanding that we are an individual spirit, that we're not just some sort of light or energy that merges with the whole, that although I'm part of the whole, I'm part of Krishna, I'm part of Krishna with the personality I have a personality, and I have an eternal personality with spiritual opinions, spiritual desires, spiritual activities, and spiritual relationships. The main component of my identity is freedom. That I have the freedom to identify myself as I am, or I have the freedom to pretend that I'm part of this world. And if I identify myself as I am, I have the freedom to engage in a loving relationship with Krishna. That my ultimate expression of reality, my ultimate expression of my authentic self, is to find who I am as an individual beyond the body and to act in that capacity in a loving, voluntary, free relationship with my source, the divine. Now, what do I do with my body and my mind? Because at least in this life, that's what I'm in. So Krishna also explains in the Bhagavad Gita, that these elements that make up my body, the solids, liquids, gases, and heat in my body, are also his energy. And so while I'm in this body, I can also use this body and this mind to connect with the spiritual. Now this concept of using the temporary and false identity that I have in this life to connect with the divine and help awaken my original real identity, I find rather amazing. Most religious and spiritual paths, if they have any understanding that we are spiritual and beyond the body, tend to have a very world-negating, negative view of the body and the world. If you think of all the people who leave society, go to some monastery off in the mountains, don't talk to anybody, just engage in contemplation and don't interact with the world because the world is all evil. And then you have, of course, other groups that say, well, this world is all that is and God wants us to enjoy the world. But in Krishna consciousness, we have a very different perspective. We say, I'm not really of this world. I'm not part of this world in the sense that this is not my identity, but everything in this world is connected with the divine. Sarva kalami dam brahma, everything is ultimately divine. 
So I can even use this temporary false identity authentically. Isn't that strange? It perhaps seemed contradictory. How can I use something false in a way that's real? The way I use something false in a way that's real is I see my actual real relationship with it. Just like we don't think that we are our car. Yeah? Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm a BMW. But we can use our car to get where we want to go. So without thinking that I'm this body, I can use this body to help my own enlightenment as an authentic soul. By engaging my body also in connection with Krishna and in connection with the divine. And that's a pretty amazing concept. So how does one do that? One does that, interestingly enough, by trying to understand the particular individual nature of the body that we're in. Remember I was saying in the beginning how people try to find out their personality and their nature, but actually we have a nature beyond the body? But once we understand we have a nature beyond the body, we can also try to understand the nature of the body itself. Again, going back to the analogy of a car, I understand I'm not the car, I'm the driver of the car, but if I want to know how to drive the car, I have to understand what kind of car I have. Right? If I have an old VW Beetle, you know, from the 1970s, I'm going to drive that a little differently than I'm going to drive a current year Ferrari, right? Maybe I don't have a car. Maybe I have a bicycle. Maybe I have a skateboard. Maybe I have a motorcycle. Maybe I have a boat. So I find out what kind of body do I have? How does it work? And I use that in relationship to the divine. And at the same time that I'm doing that, I cultivate my real identity. So there's a process given in the Bhagavad Gita of how to cultivate our real identity. That is to do activities on the spiritual level. So while I'm using the nature of this body in the service of the divine, while I'm doing that, simultaneously I'm cultivating my eternal relationship with Krishna. Now for a beginner in spiritual life, that means in a general way, saying the names of the Lord with love and devotion in meditation, offering my food to him, reading about him, talking about him, worshiping him, bowing down before him. And as an advanced person in spiritual life, it means meditating on my eternal relationship with him while I'm doing all of those things. Our eternal relationship with the Lord is somewhat understood from our relationships in this world. So in this world, we have relationships of employer and employee. Or we have relationships where we just admire someone. Or we have a relationship of friendship. Or we have a relationship where we care for someone like a parent or a teacher. Or we have a romantic relationship with someone. Or maybe we have a relationship with someone based on sportsmanship. We go and play tennis games with them. Or perhaps we have a relationship with people where we just joke around all the time. Or maybe we do extreme scary sports with them. We have different kinds of relationships with different people. And all of those relationships exist eternally between us, the individual soul, and with Krishna. So as we advance in spiritual life, we start to become aware of those relationships and we start to be able to meditate on them 
and act on them. And this is the sum and substance of what we're teaching in the Hare Krishna movement. Now, nowadays, I think people are getting more and more into the concept of trying to realize their identity in just the sense of the body. You know, this the whole emphasis on diversity and multiplicity of identities and people can identify however they want in terms of their body is really coming from the fact that all of us know that I'm not this body. When people say, well, you know, I wish I was a different gender or I wish I was a different nationality or I wish I had a different nose or I wish I had a different talent... Those are all indicators that we know that I'm something beyond the body. And instead of encouraging people in that way, that try to become happy by changing your body into another body to try to find your identity, we'd be better off if we taught the people of the world how to try to find their real self. How to try to find their spiritual self. Okay, let's say we started from today, and we started from right now, with the concept that my real identity is different from this body and mind. So I've already given a little bit of an idea of what we would do to cultivate our identity on the spiritual level. But what else do you think we would do? What kind of changes would we make in our life if we really focused on the fact that my authentic identity is spiritual? Can someone make some suggestions? What changes would we make in our life? Read spiritual texts. Yeah, what else? Don't put such emphasis on material things, okay? Some other thoughts. Could you tell me how we would do that? How do I feed the soul along with the body? What does the soul eat? Give me something specific. Okay, I could hear about the glorification of the Lord. Some other ideas, yes. More interacting with other devotees, some other ideas. Yes? Very nice. Yes. So take everything and relate it to Krishna, even the so-called material, even the physical activities. Okay, what else would we do if we understood, really understood that I'm a soul? Yes. Some service to the Lord. Now, that's an interesting idea. We talk about this a lot, some service to the Lord. Does the Lord need our service? I mean, I needed someone to get me a glass of water, but does he need that? Hmm? No, I'm fine. I have enough. <laughs> but he asked for that. He says, Patram pushpram palam twayam yome bhakta prachati tanaham bhakti paritam ashnami twayatatana. He says, I'd like to have some water, which is interesting because I already said, he said, Bhumarapilova yukamano buddharevacha. The water is his energy. So if I bring him some water, it's kind of funny. He's saying water is my energy, but you can give me some water. But that's kind of like the parent who gives the child some money so the child can buy the parent a gift. Yes? Did you do that when you were little or if you still are little? I I remember buying my father a tie. I don't know. Why did I buy my father a tie? He had so many ties. But, you know, bought my father a tie with the money that I got from my father. So yes, when we're doing service for Krishna, who are we really benefiting? Ourselves. Yes, because it's a way of connecting with him. What else would we do if we really understood that we're a spiritual being? Try try to share that with other people because we know that's the only way they're going to find happiness. 
What else will we do? Huh? Give up the pain about your past. I really like that you're going in this direction. Because a lot of what we would do if we understand that we're a spirit, that we're a spiritual being, have a spiritual identity, is not just what we would do physically. You know, you're talking about hearing or doing some service or doing some reading, but it's also what we would do mentally. Just think about this for a minute. What would we be doing mentally if we understand that we're a soul, that we have nothing to do ultimately with this world? Wouldn't we be very equipoised about the world? We'd have a lot less worries about the day-to-day things because we know they don't have anything to do with me. You know, there's, there's so many techniques and books and courses about how to reduce anxiety and how to be more peaceful, right? But as long as we think that I'm part of this world, you know what? I'm going to be in a lot of anxiety. This is a scary place, isn't it? Right? I mean, every time you get in a car, what do they say? The average is that one out of every three people will be in a, a car accident in their life. Hopefully the minor accidents I've already been in get me on the, on the better side of the statistics. But, you know, every time you get in a car or every time you cross the street in a busy intersection, right? I could end up in the hospital or whatever, crippled for life. But if I know I'm not this body, I'm not part of this world, then why worry about what happens to the body? The more that we understand that we're not part of this world, that we're a spiritual being, the less we have anxiety about anything. That doesn't mean that we're just like, you know, a little child. But it means we can act responsibly in the world without being stressed by the world. Wouldn't that be nice? Isn't that something we would all like to do? What else would happen to us if we really understood that we're a spiritual being? What else would we do or what else would we experience? Happiness. So not just freedom from anxiety and peacefulness and equanimity, but incredible joy. The soul is called Anandamaya Biasat. We're full, naturally full of joy. The only reason we're not accessing that joy is that we have the wrong identity. As long as we identify with the fragile, perishable body and mind, we, we can't access that joy. We, we can't grab it. We can't experience it, even though it's, it's right there. It's not something to be gained from another source. It already exists. It's already part of who we are. So the more that we understand that we're a soul, the more we're going to feel extremely joyful. Brahma Bhutta Prasanatma. What else would our lives be like if we really could understand our identity as a spiritual being? Yes. No ego. Well, we wouldn't have what most people call ego, which is kind of, I'm the center of the universe, I'm always right. And, you know, don't get in my way and don't offend me or you'll be sorry. We wouldn't have that kind of ego. But we would have a certain kind of sense of self. What sense of self would we have? What would be our I am? Yes. 
We wouldn't have that false ego. What would we have? We would definitely have full knowledge, yes. But what else would we have? What would be our sense of self? Feel what? We would feel a oneness with the Lord. Yes, we would. We would feel I am part of him. Yes, definitely. What else would we feel in our real identity? That we're the servant of Krishna. Yes. Now, of course, if we say that, most people don't like that very much. So any of you who are parents, did you tell your children when you grew up, I want you to be a servant? Do any of us have parents who told us, when you grew up, I want you to be a servant? No. So that concept of being a servant is kind of repulsive to most of us in this world. The idea that I'm a servant of Krishna might not be particularly attractive. But we have a sense of identity that I belong to Krishna and Krishna belongs to me. I have a oneness in that sense. And I, just like Krishna wants to make me happy, my real identity is wanting to make him happy. As in any loving relationship. Isn't that the essence of any loving relationship? I want to make the person I love happy and they want to make me happy. What else would be, would be our consciousness, our awareness, our thoughts, if we understand that I am a spiritual being beyond this body and mind? Yes. No fear. Does that mean that you walk blindfolded out in the street? No. It doesn't mean that you're responsible. It just means that fear does not control our lives. I doubt if most of us in this world have any ideas to what extent fear controls our lives. There's this underlying anxiety all the time. You know, just like we used to have a house by a train track. And the first night we stayed there, the train woke us up. And after that, we just slept through it. You lose your awareness of it. Yeah? Or if, you're, if your refrigerator in your house makes noise or something like that, you stop hearing it. So this this underlying vibration and current of fear whenever we identify with the body and the mind. And when one starts identifying as our real authentic self, that's just gone. Imagine that. Imagine how much physically healthier we would be. Right? How much more relaxed and open and free we'd be in our relationships with others. If we didn't have this undercurrent of fear. How clearer our minds would be to be able to make the right decisions. If we didn't have this fear and anxiety always running through us. What will happen? What will happen? Well, maybe this will happen. Maybe this will What else would our lives be like if we really identified as who we are? Yes. 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 Some other thoughts. What else? Oh, love and respect for everyone. Now we try to do that artificially, isn't it? All right, everybody. Love everyone. They may have a different political opinion than you, a different lifestyle from you. They may look completely differently from you, speak a different language from you, have a totally different religion from you, but love them anyway. And we're like, I don't know how. You know, we, we really try. And I mean, it's good that we try. It's good that we make an effort. But have we succeeded? With all the talk in the world of loving everyone and respecting everyone, 
all the different, you know, nationalities, religions, race, gender, political opinion. Has it worked? Has it worked? Has it worked? Not very well. We're still having, we're still killing each other, for goodness sake. We're killing somebody because they have more or less melanin in their skin or something. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yes? But if we understand we're not this body, then we can really love everybody. We can understand we're all connected as spiritual beings. The body we have now is just a a temporary circumstance. We have a united interest. We're not really different from each other in essence. Only on that platform. And you see, I I tell you, you see it not perfectly, but you see in our Hare Krishna movement, we are an international society. And once somebody has taken up Krishna consciousness seriously, they really don't discriminate on the basis of the body in terms of love and respect. I mean, not everybody perfectly, but generally speaking, it's like that. You know, I I was a teacher in Hare Krishna schools for many years, and the children grew up without this sort of, you know, ethnic, national, racial, racial, gender prejudices. They just didn't have it. They just saw everyone as a soul. And we see in so many of our centers all over the world, people from all different backgrounds, all different body types, all different whatever, can work together in a mood of love and respect. It's quite a strong evidence. Even though in our Hare Krishna movement, it's not that everybody is perfectly enlightened. That that certainly is not the case. But even just some, some spiritual understanding allows us to have a really international, transcultural, deep respect and love and appreciation for everybody. And not only for human beings, but for animals, for insects, for plants, for the earth. I mean, again, this is something people talk about a lot. But have we achieved it? But we see in our Hare Krishna movement, we are actually achieving it. Again, not perfectly. I'm sure you can find many instances where we don't come up to the mark. But you see that we really are achieving it. So, of course, Krishna says this in the Bhagavad Gita. Vijavanaya Sampane, Brahmani Gavi Hasani, Sunichaivasvapakecha, Pandita Samadarshina. Pandita means a learned person. Sama means the same. Darshina means to see. A learned person sees that every form of life is equally a soul, has equal value, is equally part of God, is equally glorious. What else would our lives be like if we actually acted on the spiritual platform, if we actually acted as our spiritual identity? Yes. Mm. Ah. Yes. And when the good things happen, you realize that that isn't, that isn't really adding to you as a soul. It may be a good opportunity for you to act in this world. And that is very profound what you just said. In fact, Krishna repeats this often throughout the Bhagavad Gita. 
that one on the spiritual platform is not affected by the material happiness and distress, fame and infamy, honor and dishonor, friends and enemies, success and failure. The things that make materially identifying people go on this emotional roller coaster and be pushed around, as we said before. Karshiti, really struggling with the body and the, and the, the senses and the mind. But when you realize your spiritual identity, that, that's not disturbing. Now, what's really interesting is that when we're not disturbed by the material happiness and distress, pain and pleasure, success, failure, honor, dishonor, friends and enemies, it doesn't mean we're just in some sort of uh, state all the time. Because remember I was saying that we understand that we're an individual and that we have an individual relationship with Krishna? That individual, please listen very carefully, this individual relationship with Krishna is full of spiritual emotion and a variety of spiritual emotion that's all ecstatic but that has something that's the origin of material fear but is an ecstatic fear and something that's the origin of material grief but is an ecstatic grief. So there's all this variety of emotion and variety of activities available on the spiritual platform. It's the reality of which this is a twisted mirror like you might see in a funhouse at a carnival. So all the variety, all the expression, all the relationship, all the emotion that here causes us just anxiety and grief and pushes us around has its eternal, real, blissful equivalent. So if we can understand by empirical evidence that we must be beyond the body, we talked about our continuing identity in this life, we talked about the fact that when someone dies, we can see they were different from the body, we talked about near-death experiences, talked about memories of past life, our subjective experiences that we want things that are not available here. And we talked about what our lives would be like if we emphasized the spiritual. So we here in the Hare Krishna movement invite everyone to do that. To take the step from I believe that I'm a soul I believe I'm not this body. I believe there's spiritual joy to living it. And because it's already who we are, it's not that hard. There is something that's hard about it. The main thing that's hard about it is we have to give up the attachments to the material identity that is only and solely causing us Distress and fear. That's the only thing that's hard. And because we have invested quite a bit into that false identity. You know, psychologically, we don't like the idea that we're going to lose something. Yes? So because we've invested something into that false identity, we may be reticent to jettison it. Maybe I'll lose something if I give that up. That's the only thing that's really hard about this process. There's another thing that's a little bit hard, 
And that is, if you act on the spiritual platform, some people that are currently part of your life might think you're a little wonky. And some of your friendship and association might shift. And that that can be tough in the beginning. Definitely can be tough in the beginning. But other than that, there's not really a price. Other than giving up what's giving us pain and having some people in your life think that you've lost it. It's really a very easy thing to do. Prioritize in terms of our time and our energy and our thought and our emotions, our real identity. And use this bodily identity and this mental identity in the service of the divine. That's all. It's really that simple. So we have about eight minutes if anybody has some specific questions. Yes. In Bhagavad Gita, yes. there is a sloka, Janma Shadruvang Mittu, Dhruvang Janma Mittu Shacha. So, everybody, if die, he will come again. But then, what is the question of hell and heaven? So you're saying that because Krishna says, for one who has died, birth is certain, and for one who has taken birth, death is certain, that how could there be any hell and heaven? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Why couldn't you go there in between? No, we come here and we'll well, why, why can't you go there in between? Yeah, so let's say you're driving from here to Houston. Are you going to drive nonstop? Or are you going to stop someplace on the way? Could you stop? Some, do you think you'll stop someplace on the way? How long of a drive is it? Four hours. Might you stop at a rest area? Yes. So our understanding of hell and heaven is temporary. We don't have an understanding of an eternal hell and an eternal heaven materially. It's a place you stop. So if you've been a very evil, nasty, terrible person, then you're going to have to stop by in a hell before you take your next body. And if you've been a, a wonderful, pious, giving, loving person, you get to have a long stop in a heaven before you come back to this planet. But when we are coming here, again we are suffering for the past karma. Okay. So why? Why are we suffering? Because if I go karma? heaven, hell, I am suffering there. So why would I have to keep suffering here? Yes. Why couldn't I have exhausted it all in hell? <laughs> Maybe you could. Depends how bad you were. I don't know. How bad are you anyway? <laughs> It's very individual. It's very individual. The main point to understandable about all that is that the universe is fair. That people get back whatever they're giving out. Whether they get it back by going to some temporary heaven or some temporary hell or whether they get it back in the next human life by being very rich or very poor or very beautiful or very ugly or whatever. There's justice in the world. 
But you know, I'm going to tell you, frankly, we're not really that interested in the fact that there's justice in the world. It's interesting. And it gives us some faith that God isn't whimsical. I mean, for me, when I first came to Krishna consciousness, that was very interesting. Because it solves the whole question of evil. Why is there evil in the world? Why do good people seem to get bad things and bad people seem to get good things? And about karma and reincarnation and heavens and hells. And it solves that problem. But that's not our ultimate interest. you know why? Because this whole world is not our ultimate home. Are you familiar with the game Monopoly? Do you know the game Monopoly? You don't know the game. He's lucky. So there's this game Monopoly where you have fake money and you can buy properties and sell properties. and But it's a game. So this whole world is like that. It's like a game. So if you do something bad in this world, you get some bad karma. You do something good in this world, you get some good karma. But it's all just happening to the body. It's not happening to you. You're just playing this game. Beyond this world, the ultimate reality is not about justice and karma at all. Karma and justice have nothing to do with it. It's all about love and mercy. Now, in that reality, there's no evil. But that's what we're interested in. We're not really interested in, in being psychologically part of a world where everything's based on fairness and justice and karma. We appreciate that Krishna's made the world like that, that he's fair and equitable and he's neutral. We appreciate that, that he's not whimsical and partial. But that's not the ultimate expression of reality. The ultimate expression of reality is quite different. There's no consideration of such things at all. Just not at all. It's really completely absent, that kind of concept. That I do something and I get a certain reaction for it and this calculation of what I'm going to get from what I'm doing. And The ultimate reality is just loving, free loving exchange. There's no, there's no merchant, you know, well, I paid for this, so I should get this, and why did I get this when I didn't pay enough for it? And it's just, it's absent. So we can appreciate the justice in this world, and if we work in government, then we can help as, uh, and we can help the Lord with his concept of justice and fairness and karma. That's okay. That's, that's something valuable to do. It's not, in, it's not that it's not valuable. But our consciousness should be in a different realm. Yes. Uh, why did this? Why did we come to this world in the first place? I know it's really dumb, isn't it? <laughs> See, that's a very hard question to answer. You know why it's a hard question to answer? Because it requires something that's very difficult for us to access when we're identifying with the false ego. And that's something, it's it's a really bad word in this world, and I don't know if I should say it. It's called humility. The only reason we're in this world is our own stupidity. And none of us want to admit that I'm so stupid that I'm in this world, and that it's my choice to be here.
There's not really any other answer. I'm sorry. It's kind of like, and I hope I don't offend anybody with this, it's kind of like asking, why do people smoke? Is there, if any of you smoke, I'm, I'm sorry. But is there a logical answer? Does anyone smoke for logical reasons? Is it an intelligent choice? But do people smoke? Why do they smoke? You can't answer that, you know, why do they smoke? I don't know. I mean, you, you can try to come up with some kind of psychological explanation for it, but you're not going to come up with an explanation that's really intellectually satisfying because there isn't an intellectually satisfying answer for that question. It's an irrational decision. The only thing that's, that's intellectually satisfying is to know that my coming to this world is an act of my free will. And therefore, I can also use my free will to leave this world. I have not been forced to come here. I'm not going to be forced to stay here. I can change my consciousness whenever I want. I, I have that power to choose what energy I want to work under. So once we get over the egoism and pride of how could I do anything so stupid as to come to this world, once I kind of get over that hump, I realize that looking at my coming to this world is very empowering. Once I realize it was my decision, and not was in the past, but it is on a moment-to-moment basis my decision. Prabhupada says Krishna is giving us a choice imperceptibly 24 hours a day. So once I acknowledge that it's my choice, where I'm putting my consciousness at every moment, then I regain my real power of free will. And that's a very beautiful thing. So once we get over the pride part of that question, then we find that we feel very empowered and very enlivened. And that it opens up the possibility for us that, hey, I could be making another choice right now. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me in Dallas. I've really enjoyed being here. As I said in the beginning, um, if any of you are interested, I've written a book on mantra meditation, how to chant the Hare Krishna mantra. Uh, we sold almost all the books. I just have four copies left. So I'm going to be here for just a few minutes. And if anybody would like to get a copy from me, I'll be right over there. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Her Grace Mother Armala Ki, Shila Prabhupada Ki, Shishi Radha Kalachanji Ki.